0: this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit www.librivox.org carmilla by j sheridan lefanu read for librivox by elizabeth clett chapter 5 a wonderful likeness This evening there arrived from Graz the grave, dark-faced son of the picture-cleaner, with a horse and cart laden with two large packing-cases, having many pictures in each. It was a journey of ten leagues, and whenever a messenger arrived at the Schloss from our little capital of Graz, we used to crowd about him in the hall to hear the news. This arrival created in our secluded quarters quite a sensation. The cases remained in the hall, and the messenger was taken charge of by the servants till he had eaten his supper." Then, with assistance, and armed with hammer, ripping, chisel, and turnscrew, he met us in the hall, where we had assembled to witness the unpacking of the cases. Carmilla sat looking listlessly on, while one after the other the old pictures, nearly all portraits, which had undergone the process of renovation, were brought to light. My mother was of an old Hungarian family, and most of these pictures, which were about to be restored to their places, had come to us through her. My father had a list in his hand from which he read, as the artist rummaged out the corresponding numbers. I don't know that the pictures were very good, but they were undoubtedly very old, and some of them very curious also. They had for the most part the merit of being now seen by me, I may say, for the first time, for the smoke and dust of time had all but obliterated them. "'There is a picture I have not yet seen,' said my father. IN ONE CORNER AT THE TOP OF IT IS THE NAME, AS WELL AS I COULD READ, MARCIA KARNSTEIN, AND THE DATE 1698, AND I AM CURIOUS TO SEE HOW IT HAS TURNED OUT. I REMEMBERED IT. IT WAS A SMALL PICTURE, ABOUT A FOOT AND A HALF HIGH, AND NEARLY SQUARE, WITHOUT A FRAME, BUT IT WAS SO BLACKENED BY AGE I COULD NOT MAKE IT OUT. THE ARTIST NOW PRODUCED IT, WITH EVIDENT PRIDE. IT WAS QUITE BEAUTIFUL. IT WAS STARTLING. It seemed to live. It was the effigy of Carmilla. Carmilla, dear! Here is an absolute miracle! Here you are, living, smiling, ready to speak in this picture. Isn't it beautiful, Papa? And see, even the little mole on her throat. My father laughed and said, Certainly it is a wonderful likeness. But he looked away and to my surprise seemed but little struck by it, and went on talking to the picture-cleaner, who was also something of an artist, and discoursed with intelligence about the portraits or other works, which his art had just brought into light and colour, while I was more and more lost in wonder, the more I looked at the picture. "'Will you let me hang this picture in my room, Papa?' I asked. "'Certainly, dear,' he said, smiling. "'I am very glad you think it so like.' It must be prettier even than I thought, if it is. The young lady did not acknowledge this pretty speech, did not seem to hear it. She was leaning back in her seat, her fine eyes under their long lashes gazing on me in contemplation, and she smiled in a kind of rapture. And now you can read quite plainly the name that is written in the corner. It is not Marcia. It looks as if it was done in gold. The name is Mercalla, Countess Karnstein, and this is a little coronet, over and underneath A.D. 1698. I am descended from the Karnsteins—that is, mamma was." "'Ah,' said the lady, languidly, "'so am I, I think, a very long descent, very ancient. Are there any Karnsteins living now?' "'None who bear the name, I believe. The family were ruined, I believe, in some civil wars long ago, but the ruins of the castle are only about three miles away. "'How interesting,' she said languidly. "'But see, what beautiful moonlight!' She glanced through the hall door, which stood a little open. "'Suppose you take a little ramble around the court, and look down at the road and river?' "'It is so like the night you came to us,' I said. She sighed, smiling. She rose, and with each her arm about the other's waist, we walked out upon the pavement. In silence, slowly we walked down to the drawbridge, where the beautiful landscape opened before us. "'And so you were thinking of the night I came here,' she almost whispered. "'Are you glad I came?' "'Delighted, dear Carmilla,' I answered. "'And you asked for the picture you think like me to hang in your room.' she murmured with a sigh, as she drew her arm closer about my waist, and let her pretty head sink upon my shoulder. "'How romantic you are, Carmilla,' I said. "'Whenever you tell me your story, it will be made up chiefly of some one great romance.' She kissed me silently. "'I am sure, Carmilla, you have been in love—that there is, at this moment, an affair of the heart going on.' "'I have been in love with no one.' And never shall, she whispered, unless it should be with you. How beautiful she looked in the moonlight. Shy and strange was the look with which she quickly hid her face in my neck and hair, with tumultuous sighs that seemed almost to sob, and pressed in mine a hand that trembled. Her soft cheek was glowing against mine. Darling. "'Darling,' she murmured, "'I live in you, and you would die for me. I love you so.' I started from her. She was gazing on me with eyes from which all fire, all meaning had flown, and a face colorless and apathetic. "'Is there a chill in the air, dear?' she said drowsily. I almost shiver. "'Have I been dreaming?' "'Let us come in. Come. Come, come in.' You look ill, Carmilla, a little faint. You certainly must take some wine, I said. Yes, I will. I'm better now. I shall be quite well in a few minutes. Yes, do give me a little wine, answered Carmilla, as we approached the door. Let us look again for a moment. It is the last time, perhaps, I shall see the moonlight with you how do you feel now dear carmilla are you really better i asked i was beginning to take alarm lest she should have been stricken with the strange epidemic that they said had invaded the country about us papa would be grieved beyond measure i added if he thought you were ever so little ill without immediately letting us know we have a very skilful doctor near us the physician who was with papa to-day i'm sure he is I know how kind you all are, but, dear child, I am quite well again. There is nothing ever wrong with me but a little weakness. People say I am languid. I am incapable of exertion. I can scarcely walk as far as a child of three years old. And every now and then the little strength I have falters, and I become as you have just seen me. But after all, I am very easily set up again." In a moment, I am perfectly myself. See how I have recovered." So indeed she had. And she and I talked a great deal, and very animated she was, and the remainder of that evening passed without any recurrence of what I call her infatuations—I mean her crazy talk and looks, which embarrassed and even frightened me. But there occurred that night an event which gave my thoughts quite a new turn and seemed to startle even carmilla's languid nature into momentary energy end of chapter 5 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit www.librivox.org Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Chapter six A Very Strange Agony When we got into the drawing room and had sat down to our coffee and chocolate, although Carmilla did not take any, she seemed quite herself again, and Madame and Mademoiselle de la Fontaine joined us and made a little card party in the course of which Papa came in for what he called his dish of tea. When the game was over, he sat down beside Carmilla on the sofa, and asked her a little anxiously whether she had heard from her mother since her arrival. She answered no. He then asked whether she knew where a letter would reach her at present. "'I cannot tell,' she answered ambiguously. "'But I have been thinking of leaving you. You have been already too hospitable and too kind to me.' I have given you an infinity of trouble, and I should wish to take a carriage to-morrow and post in pursuit of her. I know where I shall ultimately find her, although I dare not yet tell you." "'But you must not dream of any such thing,' exclaimed my father, to my great relief. "'We can afford to lose you so, and I won't consent to your leaving us, except under the care of your mother, who was so good as to consent to your remaining with us till she herself should return.' I should be quite happy if I knew that you heard from her. But this evening the accounts of the progress of the mysterious disease that has invaded our neighborhood grow even more alarming. And, my beautiful guest, I do feel the responsibility, unaided by advice from your mother, very much. But I shall do my best. And one thing is certain, that you must not think of leaving us without her distinct direction to that effect. We should suffer too much in parting from you to consent to it easily." "'Thank you, sir, a thousand times for your hospitality,' she answered, smiling bashfully. "'You have all been too kind to me. I have seldom been so happy in all my life before, as in your beautiful chateau, under your care, and in the society of your dear daughter.' So he gallantly, in his old-fashioned way, kissed her hand, smiling and pleased at her little speech. I accompanied Carmilla as usual to her room, and sat and chatted with her while she was preparing for bed. Do you think, I said at length, that you will ever confide fully in me? She turned round, smiling, but made no answer, only continued to smile on me. You won't answer that, I said. You can't answer pleasantly, I ought not to have asked you. You are quite right to ask me that, or anything. You do not know how dear you are to me, or you could not think any confidence too great to look for. But I am under vows, no none half so awfully, and I dare not tell my story yet, even to you. The time is very near when you shall know everything. You will think me cruel, very selfish, but love is always selfish. "'the more ardent, the more selfish. "'How jealous I am, you cannot know. "'You must come with me, loving me, to death, "'or else hate me, and still come with me, "'and hating me through death and after. "'There is no such word as indifference "'in my apathetic nature.' "'Now, Carmilla, you are going to talk "'your wild nonsense again,' I said hastily. Not I. Silly little fool as I am, and full of whims and fancies. For your sake, I'll talk like a sage. Were you ever at a ball? No, how you do run on. What is it like? How charming it must be. I almost forget. It is years ago. I laughed. You are not so old. Your first ball can hardly be forgotten yet. I remember everything about it with an effort. I see it all, as divers see what is going on above them, through a medium, dense, rippling but transparent. There occurred that night what has confused the picture and made its colors faint. I was all but assassinated in my bed. Wounded here, she touched her breast, and never was the same since. Were you near dying? Yes, very, a cruel love, strange love that would have taken my life. Love will have its sacrifices, no sacrifice without blood. Let us go to sleep now. I feel so lazy. How can I get up just now and lock my door? She was lying with her tiny hands buried in her rich wavy hair, under her cheek, Her little head upon the pillow and her glittering eyes followed me whenever I moved, with a kind of shy smile that I could not decipher. I bid her good-night, and crept from the room with an uncomfortable sensation. I often wondered whether our pretty guest ever said her prayers. I certainly had never seen her upon her knees. In the morning she never came down until long after our family prayers were over and at night she never left the drawing-room to attend our brief evening prayers in the hall. If it had not been that it had casually come out in one of our careless talks that she had been baptized, I should have doubted her being a Christian. Religion was a subject on which I had never heard her speak a word. If I had known the world better, this particular neglect, or antipathy, would not have so much surprised me." The precautions of nervous people are infectious, and persons of a like temperament are pretty sure, after a time, to imitate them. I had adopted Carmilla's habit of locking her bedroom door, having taken into my head all her whimsical alarms about midnight invaders and prowling assassins. I had also adopted her precaution of making a brief search through her room, to satisfy herself that no lurking assassin or robber was ensconced. These wise measures taken— I got into my bed and fell asleep. A light was burning in my room. This was an old habit, a very early date, and which nothing could have tempted me to dispense with. Thus fortified, I might take my rest in peace. But dreams come through stone walls, light up dark rooms, or darken light ones, and their persons make their exits and their entrances as they please, and laugh at locksmiths. I had a dream that night that was the beginning of a very strange agony. I cannot call it a nightmare, for I was quite conscious of being asleep. But I was equally conscious of being in my room, and lying in bed precisely as I actually was. I saw—or fancied I saw—the room and its furniture just as I had seen it last, except that it was very dark, and I saw something moving round the foot of the bed, which at first I could not accurately distinguish. But I soon saw that it was a sooty black animal that resembled a monstrous cat. It appeared to me about four or five feet long, for it measured fully the length of the hearth-rug as it passed over it, and it continued towing and froing with the lithe, sinister restlessness of a beast in a cage. I could not cry out, although, as you may suppose, I was terrified. Its pace was growing faster— and the room rapidly darker and darker, and at length so dark that I could no longer see anything of it but its eyes. I felt it spring lightly on the bed. The two broad eyes approached my face, and suddenly I felt a stinging pain as if two large needles darted an inch or two apart deep into my breast. I waked with a scream. The room was lighted by the candle that burnt there all through the night— and I saw a female figure standing at the foot of the bed a little at the right side. It was in a dark, loose dress, and its hair was down and covered its shoulders. A block of stone could not have been more still. There was not the slightest stir of respiration. As I stared at it, the figure appeared to have changed its place, and was now nearer the door. Then close to it, the door opened, and it passed out." I was now relieved, and able to breathe and move. My first thought was that Carmilla had been playing me a trick, and that I had forgotten to secure my door. I hastened to it, and found it locked, as usual, on the inside. I was afraid to open it. I was horrified. I sprang into my bed and covered my head up in the bedclothes, and lay there, more dead than alive, till morning. end of chapter 6 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit www.librivox.org carmilla By J. Sheridan Lefanu. Read for LibriVox by Elizabeth Clett. Chapter 7 Descending. It would be vain my attempting to tell you the horror with which, even now, I recall the occurrence of that night. It was no such transitory terror as a dream leaves behind it. It seemed to deepen by time. "'and communicated itself to the room "'and the very furniture that had encompassed the apparition. "'I could not bear next day to be alone for a moment. "'I should have told Papa, but for two opposite reasons. "'At one time I thought he would laugh at my story, "'and I could not bear its being treated as a jest, "'and at another I thought he might fancy "'that I had been attacked by the mysterious complaint "'which had invaded our neighborhood.' I had myself no misgiving of the kind, and as he had been rather an invalid for some time, I was afraid of alarming him. I was comfortable enough with my good-natured companions, Madame Perodon and the vivacious Mademoiselle La Fontaine. They both perceived that I was out of spirits and nervous, and at length I told them what lay so heavy at my heart. Mademoiselle laughed, but I fancied that Madame Perodon looked anxious— "'By the bye, said Mademoiselle, laughing, "'the long lime-tree walk behind Carmilla's bedroom window is haunted.' "'Nonsense!' exclaimed Madame, who probably thought the theme rather inopportune. "'And who tells that story, my dear?' "'Martin says he came up twice, when the old yard-gate was being repaired before sunrise, and twice saw the same female figure walking down the lime-tree avenue.' so well he might, as long as there are cows to milk in the river-fields,' said madame. "'I dare say, but Martin chooses to be frightened, and never did I see fool more frightened.' "'You must not say a word about it to Carmilla, because she can see down that walk from her room-window,' I interposed, "'and she is, if possible, a greater coward than I.' Carmella came down rather later than usual that day. "'I was so frightened last night,' she said, so soon as we were together. "'And I am sure I should have seen something dreadful, if it had not been for that charm I bought from the poor little hunchback who I called such hard names. I had a dream of something black coming round my bed, and I awoke in perfect horror, and I really thought for some seconds I saw a dark figure near the chimney-piece. But I felt under my pillow for my charm, and the moment my fingers touched it, the figure disappeared, and I felt quite certain, only that I had it by me, that something frightful would have made its appearance, and perhaps throttled me as it did those poor people we heard of. "'Well, listen to me,' I began, and recounted my adventure— at the recital of which she appeared horrified. "'And had you the charm near you?' she asked earnestly. "'No, I had dropped it into a china vase in the drawing-room, but I shall certainly take it with me to-night, as you have so much faith in it. At this distance of time I cannot tell you, or even understand, how I overcame my horror so effectually as to lie alone in my room that night. I remember distinctly that I pinned the charm to my pillow.' I fell asleep almost immediately, and slept even more soundly than usual all night. Next night I passed as well. My sleep was delightfully deep and dreamless. But I wakened with a sense of lassitude and melancholy, which, however, did not exceed a degree that was almost luxurious. "'Well, I told you so,' said Carmilla, when I described my night's sleep. I had such delightful sleep myself last night. I pinned the charm to the breast of my night-dress. It was too far away the night before. I am quite sure it was all fancy, except the dreams. I used to think that evil spirits made dreams, but our doctor told me it is no such thing. Only a fever passing by, or some other malady, as they often do, he said, knocks at the door, and not being able to get in— "'passes on with that alarm. "'And what do you think the charm is?' said I. "'It has been fumigated or immersed in some drug, and is an antidote against the malaria,' she answered. "'Then it acts only on the body?' "'Certainly. You don't suppose that evil spirits are frightened by bits of ribbon, or the perfumes of a druggist's shop?' No, these complaints, wandering in the air, begin by trying the nerves, and so infect the brain. But before they can seize upon you, the antidote repels them. That, I am sure, is what the charm has done for us. It is nothing magical. It is simply natural. I should have been happier if I could quite have agreed with Carmilla. But I did my best— and the impression was a little losing its force. For some nights I slept profoundly, but still every morning I felt the same lassitude, and a languor weighed upon me all day. I felt myself a changed girl. A strange melancholy was stealing over me, a melancholy that I would not have interrupted. Dim thoughts of death began to open, and an idea that I was slowly sinking took gentle and somehow not unwelcome possession of me. If it was sad, the tone of mind which this induced was also sweet. Whatever it might be, my soul acquiesced in it. I would not admit that I was ill. I would not consent to tell my papa, or to have the doctor sent for. Carmilla became more devoted to me than ever— and her strange paroxysms of languid adoration more frequent. She used to gloat on me with increasing ardor, the more my strength and spirits waned. This always shocked me, like a momentary glare of insanity. Without knowing it, I was now in a pretty advanced stage of the strangest illness under which mortal ever suffered— There was an unaccountable fascination in its earlier symptoms, that more than reconciled me to the incapacitating effect of that stage of the malady. This fascination increased for a time, until it reached a certain point, when gradually a sense of the horrible mingled itself with it, deepening, as you shall hear, until it discolored and perverted the whole state of my life." The first change I experienced was rather agreeable. It was very near the turning point from which began the descent of Avernus. Certain vague and strange sensations visited me in my sleep. The prevailing one was of that pleasant, peculiar, cold thrill which we feel in bathing, when we move against the current of a river. This was soon accompanied by dreams that seemed interminable, and were so vague that I could never recollect their scenery and persons, or any one connected portion of their action. But they left an awful impression, and a sense of exhaustion, as if I had passed through a long period of great mental exertion and danger. After all these dreams there remained on waking, a remembrance of having been in a place very nearly dark, and of having spoken to people whom I could not see, and especially of one clear voice, of a female's, very deep, that spoke as if at a distance, slowly, and producing always the same sensation of indescribable solemnity and fear. Sometimes there came a sensation as if a hand was drawn softly along my cheek and neck. Sometimes, It was as if warm lips kissed me, and longer, and longer and more lovingly as they reached my throat, but there the caress fixed itself. My heart beat faster, my breathing rose and fell rapidly, and full drawn, a sobbing that rose into a sense of strangulation, supervened and turned into a dreadful convulsion, in which my senses left me, and I became unconscious. It was now three weeks since the commencement of this unaccountable state. My sufferings had, during the last week, told upon my appearance. I had grown pale, my eyes were dilated and darkened underneath, and the languor which I had long felt began to display itself in my countenance. My father asked me often whether I was ill, but with an obstinacy which now seems to me unaccountable, I persisted in assuring him that I was quite well. In a sense, this was true. I had no pain. I could complain of no bodily derangement. My complaint seemed to be one of the imagination, or the nerves, and, horrible as my sufferings were, I kept them, with a morbid reserve, very nearly to myself. It could not be that terrible complaint which the peasants called the upyre for I had now been suffering for three weeks, and they were seldom ill for much more than three days, when death put an end to their miseries. Carmilla complained of dreams and feverish sensations, but by no means of so alarming a kind as mine. I say that mine were extremely alarming. Had I been capable of comprehending my condition, I would have invoked aid and advice on my knees the narcotic of an unsuspected influence was acting upon me, and my perceptions were benumbed. I am going to tell you now of a dream that led immediately to an odd discovery. One night, instead of the voice I was accustomed to hear in the dark, I heard one, sweet and tender, and at the same time terrible, which said— Your mother warns you to be aware of the assassin. At the same time a light unexpectedly sprang up, and I saw Carmilla, standing near the foot of my bed in her white nightdress, bathed from her chin to her feet in one great stain of blood. I wakened with a shriek, possessed with the idea that Carmilla was being murdered. I remember springing from my bed— and my next recollection is that of standing on the lobby, crying for help. Madame and Mademoiselle came scurrying out of their rooms in alarm. A lamp burned always on the lobby, and seeing me, they soon learned the cause of my terror. I insisted on our knocking at Carmilla's door. Our knocking was unanswered. It soon became a pounding and an uproar. We shrieked her name, but all was vain. We all grew frightened, for the door was locked we hurried back in panic to my room. There we rang the bell long and furiously. If my father's room had been at that side of the house, we would have called him up at once to our aid. But alas! he was quite out of hearing, and to reach him involved an excursion for which we none of us had courage. Servants, however, soon came running up the stairs. I had got on my dressing-gown and slippers, meanwhile, and my companions were already similarly furnished. Recognizing the voices of the servants on the lobby, we sallied out together, and having renewed as fruitlessly our summons at Carmilla's door, I ordered the men to force the lock. They did so, and we stood, holding our lights aloft in the doorway, and so stared into the room. We called her by name, but there was still no reply. We looked round the room. Everything was undisturbed. It was exactly in the state in which I had left it on bidding her good-night." but carmilla was gone end of chapter 7 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer Visit www.librivox.org. Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Read by Elizabeth Clett. Chapter 8 Search. At sight of the room, perfectly undisturbed except for our violent entrance, we began to cool a little and soon recovered our senses sufficiently to dismiss the men. It had struck Mademoiselle that possibly Carmilla had been wakened by the uproar at her door, and in her first panic had jumped from her bed, and hid herself in a press, or behind a curtain, from which she could not, of course, emerge until the major-domo and his myrmidons had withdrawn. We now recommenced our search, and began to call her name again. It was all to no purpose. Our perplexity and agitation increased." We examined the windows, but they were secured. I implored of Carmilla, if she had concealed herself, to play this cruel trick no longer, to come out and to end our anxieties. It was all useless. I was by this time convinced that she was not in the room, nor in the dressing-room, the door of which was still locked on this side. She could not have passed it. I was utterly puzzled. Had Carmilla discovered one of those secret passages which the old housekeeper said were known to exist in the Schloss, although the tradition of their exact situation had been lost? A little time would, no doubt, explain all. Utterly perplexed as for the present we were. It was past four o'clock, and I preferred passing the remaining hours of darkness in Madame's room. Daylight brought no solution of the difficulty. The whole household, with my father at his head— was in a state of agitation next morning. Every part of the chateau was searched. The grounds were explored. No trace of the missing lady could be discovered. The stream was about to be dragged. My father was in distraction. What a tale to have to tell the poor girl's mother on her return. I, too, was almost beside myself, though my grief was of quite a different kind. The morning was passed in alarm and excitement. It was now one o'clock and still no tidings. I ran up to Carmilla's room, and found her standing at her dressing-table. I was astounded. I could not believe my eyes. She beckoned to me with her pretty finger in silence. Her face expressed extreme fear. I ran to her in an ecstasy of joy. I kissed and embraced her again and again— I ran to the bell, and rang it vehemently, to bring others to the spot who might at once relieve my father's anxiety. "'Dear Carmilla, what has become of you all this time? We have been in agonies of anxiety about you,' I exclaimed. "'Where have you been? How did you come back?' "'Last night has been a night of wonders,' she said. "'For mercy's sake, explain all you can!' "'It was past two last night,' she said when I went to sleep as usual in my bed, with my doors locked, that of the dressing-room and that opening upon the gallery. My sleep was uninterrupted, and, so far as I know, dreamless. But I woke just now on the sofa in the dressing-room there, and I found the door between the rooms open, and the other door forced. How could all this have happened without my being wakened? It must have been accompanied with a great deal of noise, and I am particularly easily wakened and how could I have been carried out of my bed without my sleep having been interrupted? I, whom the slightest stir, startles. By this time, madame, mademoiselle, my father, and a number of the servants were in the room. Carmilla was, of course, overwhelmed with inquiries, congratulations, and welcomes. She had but one story to tell, and seemed the least able of all the party to suggest any way of accounting for what had happened. My father took a turn up and down the room, thinking— I saw Carmilla's eye follow him for a moment, with a sly, dark glance. When my father had sent the servants away, Mademoiselle having gone in search of a little bottle of Valerian, and sell volatile, and there being no one now in the room with Carmilla, except my father, madame, and myself, he came to her thoughtfully, took her hand very kindly, and led her to the sofa and sat down beside her. "'Will you forgive me, my dear, if I risk a conjecture and ask a question?' "'Who can have better right?' she said. "'Ask what you please, and I will tell you everything. "'But my story is simply one of bewilderment and darkness. "'I know absolutely nothing. "'Put any question you please, but you know, of course, "'the limitations Mamma has placed me under.' "'Perfectly, my dear child. "'I need not approach the topics on which she desires our silence.' Now, the marvel of last night consists in your having been removed from your bed and your room, without being wakened, and this removal having occurred apparently while the windows were still secured, and the two doors locked upon the inside. I will tell you my theory, and ask you a question. Carmilla was leaning on her hand, dejectedly. Madame and I were listening, breathlessly. Now my question is this. "'Have you ever been suspected of walking in your sleep?' "'Never, since I was very young, indeed.' "'But you did walk in your sleep when you were young?' "'Yes, I know I did. I have been told so often by my old nurse.' My father smiled and nodded. "'Well, what has happened is this. You got up in your sleep, unlocked the door, not leaving the key, as usual, in the lock— "'but taking it out and locking it on the outside. "'You again took the key out, "'and carried it away with you "'to some one of the five-and-twenty rooms on this floor, "'or perhaps upstairs or downstairs. "'There are so many rooms and closets, "'so much heavy furniture, "'and such accumulations of lumber "'that it would require a week "'to search this old house thoroughly. "'Do you see now what I mean?' "'I do, but not all,' she answered. "'And how, Papa, do you account for her finding herself on the sofa in the dressing-room, which we had searched so carefully?' "'She came there after you had searched it, still in her sleep, and at last awoke spontaneously, and was as much surprised to find herself where she was as any one else.' "'I wish all mysteries were as easily and innocently explained as yours, Carmilla,' he said, laughing. And so we may congratulate ourselves on the certainty that the most natural explanation of the occurrence is one that involves no drugging, no tampering with locks, no burglars or poisoners or witches, nothing that need alarm Carmilla or any one else for our safety. Carmilla was looking charmingly. Nothing could be more beautiful than her tints. Her beauty was, I think, enhanced by that graceful languor that was peculiar to her. I think my father was silently contrasting her looks with mine, for he said, I wish my poor Laura was looking more like herself, and he sighed. So our alarms were happily ended, and Carmilla restored to her friends. End of Chapter 8 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.libriVox.org. Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lefanu, read by Elizabeth Klett. Chapter 9 THE DOCTOR As Carmilla would not hear of an attendant sleeping in her room, my father arranged that a servant should sleep outside her door, so that she would not attempt to make another such excursion without being arrested at her own door. That night passed quietly, and next morning early the doctor, whom my father had sent for without telling me a word about it, arrived to see me. Madame accompanied me to the library, and there, the grave little doctor, with white hair and spectacles, whom I mentioned before, was waiting to receive me. I told him my story, and as I proceeded, he grew graver and graver. We were standing, he and I, in the recess of one of the windows, facing one another. When my statement was over, he leaned with his shoulders against the wall, and with his eyes fixed on me earnestly, with an interest in which was a dash of horror. After a minute's reflection, he asked madame if he could see my father. He was sent for accordingly, and as he entered, smiling, he said, "'I dare say, doctor, you are going to tell me that I am an old fool for having brought you here. I hope I am.' But his smile faded into shadow as the doctor, with a very grave face, beckoned to him. He and the doctor talked for some time in the same recess where I had just conferred with the physician— It seemed an earnest and argumentative conversation. The room is very large, and I and madame stood together, burning with curiosity, at the farther end. Not a word could we hear, however, for they spoke in a very low tone, and the deep recess of the window quite concealed the doctor from view, and very nearly my father, whose foot, arm, and shoulder only we could see, and the voices were, I suppose, all the less audible for the sort of closet which the thick wall and window formed. After a time my father's face looked into the room. It was pale, thoughtful, and I fancied agitated. "'Laura, dear, come here for a moment. Madame, we shan't trouble you, the doctor says at present.' Accordingly I approached, for the first time a little alarmed, for although I felt very weak, I did not feel ill— And strength, one always fancies, is a thing that may be picked up when we please. My father held out his hand to me, as I drew near, but he was looking at the doctor, and he said, It certainly is very odd. I don't understand it quite. Laura, come here, dear. Now attend to Dr. Spielsberg, and recollect yourself. You mentioned a sensation like that of two needles piercing the skin, somewhere about your neck— "'on the night when you first experienced your horrible dream. "'Is there still any soreness?' "'None at all,' I answered. "'Can you indicate with your finger about the point at which you think this occurred?' "'Very little below my throat. "'Here,' I answered. "'I wore a morning dress, which covered the place I pointed to. "'Now you can satisfy yourself,' said the doctor. "'You won't mind your papa's lowering your dress a very little.' It is necessary, to detect a symptom of the complaint under which you have been suffering. I acquiesced. It was only an inch or two below the edge of my collar. "'God bless me! So it is!' exclaimed my father, growing pale. "'You see it now, with your own eyes,' said the doctor, with a gloomy triumph. "'What is it?' I exclaimed, beginning to be frightened. "'Nothing, my dear young lady, but a small blue spot— "'About the size of the tip of your little finger. "'And now,' he continued, turning to Papa, "'the question is, what is best to be done?' "'Is there any danger?' I urged, in great trepidation. "'I trust not, my dear,' answered the doctor. "'I don't see why you should not recover. "'I don't see why you should not immediately begin to get better. "'That is the point at which the sense of strangulation begins.' "'Yes,' I answered.' And, recollect as well as you can, the same point was a kind of centre of that thrill which you describe just now, like the current of a cold stream running against you. It may have been. I think it was. Ay, you see, he added, turning to my father, shall I say a word to madame? Certainly, said my father. He called madame to him, and said— I find my young friend here far from well. It won't be of any great consequence, I hope, but it will be necessary that some steps be taken, which I will explain by and by. But in the meantime, madame, you will be so good as to not let Miss Laura be alone for one moment. That is the only direction I need give for the present. It is indispensable. We may rely upon your kindness, madame, I know," added my father. Madame satisfied him eagerly. And you, dear Laura, I know you will observe the doctor's direction. I shall have to ask your opinion upon another patient, whose symptoms slightly resemble those of my daughter, that have just been detailed to you, very much milder in degree, but I believe quite of the same sort. She is a young lady, our guest, but as you say you will be passing this way again this evening, you can't do better than take your supper here, and you can then see her. She does not come down till the afternoon. "'I thank you,' said the doctor. "'I shall be with you, then, at about seven this evening.' And then they repeated their directions to me and madame, and with this parting charge my father left us, and walked out with the doctor, and I saw them pacing together up and down between the road and the moat, on the grassy platform in front of the castle, evidently absorbed in earnest conversation. The doctor did not return." I saw him mount his horse there, take his leave, and ride away eastward through the forest. Nearly at the same time I saw the man arrive from Dranfield with the letters, and dismount and hand the bag to my father. In the meantime, Madame and I were both busy, lost in conjecture as to the reasons of the singular and earnest direction which the doctor and my father had concurred in imposing. Madame, as she afterwards told me— was afraid the doctor apprehended a sudden seizure, and that without prompt assistance I might either lose my life in a fit, or at least be seriously hurt. The interpretation did not strike me, and I fancied, perhaps luckily for my nerves, that the arrangement was prescribed simply to secure a companion, who would prevent my taking too much exercise, or eating unripe fruit, or doing any of the fifty foolish things to which young people are supposed to be prone. About half an hour after my father came in, he had a letter in his hand, and said, "'This letter had been delayed. It is from General Spielsdorf. He might have been here yesterday. He may not come until tomorrow, or he may be here today." He put the letter into my hand, but he did not look pleased, as he used when a guest, especially one so much loved as the General, was coming. On the contrary, he looked as if he wished him at the bottom of the Red Sea— There was plainly something on his mind which he did not choose to divulge. "'Papa, darling, will you tell me this?' said I, suddenly laying my hand on his arm, and looking, I am sure, imploringly in his face. "'Perhaps,' he answered, smoothing my hair caressingly over my eyes. "'Does the doctor think me very ill?' "'No, dear. He thinks, if right steps are taken, you will be quite well again.' "'at least on the high road to a complete recovery in a day or two,' he answered a little dryly. "'I wish our good friend, the General, had chosen any other time. "'That is, I wish you had been perfectly well to receive him.' "'But do tell me, Papa,' I insisted, "'what does he think is the matter with me?' "'Nothing. "'You must not plague me with questions,' he answered, "'with more irritation than I ever remember him to have displayed before.' And seeing that I looked wounded, I suppose, he kissed me, and added, "'You shall know all about it in a day or two—that is, all that I know. In the meantime, you are not to trouble your head about it.' He turned and left the room, but came back before I had done wondering and puzzling over the oddity of all this. It was merely to say that he was going to Karnstein, and had ordered the carriage to be ready at twelve, and that I and madame should accompany him.' He was going to see the priest who lived near those picturesque grounds upon business, and as Carmilla had never seen them, she could follow, when she came down, with Mademoiselle, who would bring materials for what you call a picnic, which might be laid for us in the ruined castle. At twelve o'clock, accordingly, I was ready, and not long after, my father, madame, and I set out upon our projected drive. Passing the drawbridge, we turned to the right, and follow the road over the steep Gothic bridge, westward, to reach the deserted village and ruined castle of Karnstein. No sylvan drive can be fancied prettier. The ground breaks into gentle hills and hollows, all clothed with beautiful wood, totally destitute of the comparative formality which artificial planting and early culture and pruning impart. The irregularities of the ground often lead the road out of its course— and cause it to wind beautifully round the sides of broken hollows, and the steeper sides of the hills, among varieties of ground almost inexhaustible. Turning one of these points, we suddenly encountered our old friend, the general, riding towards us, attended by a mounted servant. His portmanteaus were following in a hired wagon, such as we term a cart. The general dismounted as we pulled up, and after the usual greetings, was easily persuaded to accept the vacant seat in the carriage, and send his horse on with his servant to the Schloss. End of chapter Nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit www. Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Read by Elizabeth Clett. Chapter 10 Bereaved. It was about ten months since we had last seen him, but that time had sufficed to make an alteration of years in his appearance. He had grown thinner something of gloom and anxiety had taken the place of that cordial serenity which used to characterize his features. His dark blue eyes, always penetrating, now gleamed with a sterner light from under his shaggy gray eyebrows. It was not such a change as grief alone usually induces, and angrier passions seem to have had their share in bringing it about. We had not long resumed our drive, when the general began to talk, with his usual soldierly directness, of the bereavement, as he termed it, which he had sustained in the death of his beloved niece and ward. And he then broke out in a tone of intense bitterness and fury, inveighing against the hellish arts to which she had fallen a victim, and expressing, with more exasperation than piety, his wonder that heaven should tolerate so monstrous an indulgence of the lusts and malignity of hell. My father, who saw at once that something very extraordinary had befallen— asked him, if not too painful to him, to detail the circumstances which he thought justified the strong terms in which he expressed himself. "'I should tell you with all pleasure,' said the General, "'but you would not believe me.' "'Why should I not?' he asked. "'Because,' he answered testily, "'you believe in nothing but what consists "'with your own prejudices and illusions. "'I remember when I was like you.' but I have learned better. "'Try me,' said my father. "'I am not such a dogmatist as you suppose.' "'Besides which, I very well know that you generally require proof for what you believe, and am therefore very strongly predisposed to respect your conclusions.' "'You are right in supposing that I have not been led lightly into a belief in the marvellous, for what I have experienced is marvelous and I have been forced by extraordinary evidence to credit that which ran counter, diametrically, to all my theories. I have been made the dupe of a preternatural conspiracy. Notwithstanding his professions of confidence in the General's penetration, I saw my father at this point glance at the General, with, as I thought, a marked suspicion of his sanity. The General did not see it, luckily— He was looking gloomily and curiously into the glades and vistas of the woods that were opening before us. "'You are going to the ruins of Karnstein,' he said. "'Yes. It is a lucky coincidence. Do you know I was going to ask you to bring me there to inspect them? I have a special object in exploring. There is a ruined chapel, ain't there, with a great many tombs of that extinct family?' "'So there are. Highly interesting,' said my father— I hope you are thinking of claiming the title and estates?' My father said this gaily, but the general did not recollect the laugh, or even the smile which courtesy exacts for a friend's joke. On the contrary, he looked grave, and even fierce, ruminating on a matter that stirred his anger and horror. "'Something very different,' he said gruffly. "'I mean to unearth some of those fine people.' I hope, by God's blessing, to accomplish a pious sacrilege here, which will relieve our earth of certain monsters, and enable honest people to sleep in their beds without being assailed by murderers. I have strange things to tell you, my dear friend, such as I myself would have scouted as incredible a few months since. My father looked at him again, but this time not with a glance of suspicion— with an eye, rather, of keen intelligence and alarm. "'The house of Karnstein,' he said, "'has been long extinct—a hundred years, at least. My dear wife was maternally descended from the Karnsteins. But the name and title have long ceased to exist. The castle is a ruin. The very village is deserted. It is fifty years since the smoke of a chimney was seen there. Not a roof left.' "'Quite true.' "'I have heard a great deal about that since I last saw you—a great deal that will astonish you.' "'But I had better relate everything in the order in which it occurred,' said the General. "'You saw my dear ward—my child, I may call her. No creature could have been more beautiful, and only three months ago none more blooming.' "'Yes, poor thing! When I saw her last she certainly was quite lovely,' said my father." I was grieved and shocked more than I can tell you, my dear friend. I knew what a blow it was to you. He took the General's hand, and they exchanged a kind pressure. Tears gathered in the old soldier's eyes. He did not seek to conceal them. He said, We have been very old friends. I knew you would feel for me, childless as I am. She had become an object of very near interest to me and repaid my care by an affection that cheered my home and made my life happy. That is all gone. The years that remain to me on earth may not be very long, but by God's mercy I hope to accomplish a service to mankind before I die, and to subserve the vengeance of heaven upon the fiends who have murdered my poor child in the spring of her hopes and beauty. "'You said just now that you intended relating everything as it occurred,' said my father. "'Pray do, I assure you that it is not mere curiosity that prompts me. "'By this time we had reached the point at which the Drunstahl road, by which the general had come, "'diverges from the road which we were travelling to Karnstein.' "'How far is it to the ruins?' inquired the general, looking anxiously forward. "'About half a league,' answered my father. "'Pray, let us hear the story you were so good as to promise.' End of chapter 10